Amen. Thank you, Ken. Thanks, Jay. You're sweating, man. <laughs> Working hard up here. How are we doing? Okay. Andrea's great. It's good to see you all. Super glad that you're here with us. Uh, if you're joining us online, obviously we can't see you, but thankful you're joining as well. Uh, as Ken just read, we're in the Gospel of John. We've made it to chapter 20. We've been in the Gospel of John now, it seems like, for years. It's been two years. Yeah, we've been in this, in this uh, walking through the Gospel together. And we've made it to the part of the Gospel of John where we are seeing these resurrection appearances. And today, um, we're looking at this specific, specific um, resurrection appearance of Jesus to Thomas that's very personal, it's very unique. And we're finding that, uh, that continual theme with all of Jesus' resurrection appearances, that they're very personal. Um, and so we're going we're gonna to look deeper at that in just a minute. So John 20 is where we'll be if you want to turn there in your Bible. Uh, just a quick announcement about next weekend. It's going to be a little bit different, um, really the whole weekend. Um, as we as a church try to find our role in, in, in encouraging you and equipping you to kind of push back against the busyness and the chaos of the world, especially as it relates to like family and family time, we're continually trying to think of ways that we can come alongside you and even create space for you um, and your family. And so next weekend really is kind of a family worship weekend, um, specifically for our young ladies on Friday night. Uh, moms and daughters, both kids and students, uh, student ministry, will be getting together on Friday evening for karaoke night. Like, who doesn't want to be involved in that? Um, just a great time for, um, for moms and daughters to come together. And if you're like a uh, a single dad and you've got daughters you're not quite sure what to do talk to Blake our kids pastor or Jeremy student pastor because there are actually ladies in our church who really want to go to the karaoke night who have sons and they're like I'll, can I borrow your daughter so I can go sing karaoke uh, but that's Friday night I'm um, just creating space for um, for our ladies to build a relationship um, between generations and then on Sunday we're going to have family worship uh, Sunday where we invite our kids and students into the service for the whole time so like um, you know, each Sunday we've got kids ministry going on, and then our students will join us for part of the service and then go uh, to the student center. Next Sunday, um, we'll have nursery and toddlers available, but our kids and students will be in here with us. And so uh, it'll be a unique time of worship. I think it's really good for our kids to get to see how mom and dad worship and how mom and dad respond to uh, the Holy Spirit and how mom and dad respond to the gospel and, and how mom and dad's friends worship. Like all of that is part of what it means to be the church. And so we try to create at least four times a year where our kids and students are a part of what we're doing in here. So that's next Sunday. Then after the 11 o'clock service is our chili cook-off, which we've been hearing so much about. I know we've been doing this for, I think, like six years or something. And I was telling somebody, like, just so you know, if you're entering, the judges have no idea um, whose chilies or desserts they're sampling when they're making their decision. So the fact that kids won everything last year uh, does not mean that it's rigged. So some of you are like, I'm not entering chili again because a six-year-old won last year. Hey, bring it, okay? Judges have no idea if it's six or 60, and uh, if you're scared of the competition, that's okay. Um, but if you want to you register or if you want to bring a chili, make sure you register. Um, you can do that on our website. That's the easiest place. Just go to events, chili cook-off, and register for your chili or, or your dessert. But more than anything, just be ready to, to come together as the family of God. Like, you know, with two services, we don't, we don't get to do that that often. So this will be a time where we get to be together. Uh, kids are going to be in the service, but also have a special part in the service. I have uh, something uh, special planned for the kids during the service as well. So kids, I want you to be here. I'm going to need your help uh, next Sunday, okay? So uh, that's next weekend. We are um, in John chapter 20. Uh, I'm just going to go ahead and get started uh, in verse 24. 
and, uh, and we're going to see what God has for us today. So starting in verse 24, we read this. Now Thomas, one of the twelve called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the, marks of the, the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. So Thomas is really uh, kind of the main disciple here in this part of the story. And this is typically why we refer to Thomas as Doubting Thomas. So you've probably heard that before if you grew up in church, vacation Bible school, or Sunday school. Typically when you get to this part of the Gospel of John, we refer to Thomas as Doubting Thomas. Now for sure, there is a lot of doubt going on here with Thomas, and we're going to unpack that together. Uh, but we're going to give... We're going to give Thomas the benefit of the doubt, and we're going to look at who Thomas was as a disciple and really try to understand, like, the intensity of this moment, the intensity of what it meant to be one of Jesus' followers, and Jesus was just killed, and now these rumors are spreading that he has risen from the grave, and as we're going to see, there is an effort to squash these rumors and to bring it all to a close. But first of all, what I want to point out here is just to understand what Thomas is going through. When, when we read that the other disciples told Thomas that they had seen the Lord, that word that told, that's not like just like a simple past tense. That's an imperfect tense, which means that they kept telling Thomas. So this was a conversation that they had been having now for eight days. So this is eight days after the resurrection. And I'm sure on a daily basis, this was coming up where Thomas is asked, are you sure that was Jesus that you saw? Yes, we saw him, and Peter and John, like, we were at the tomb, we saw it, and it was empty, and, and, then, and then later on that evening, he came through, the doors were locked, Thomas, and he came through. Are, are you sure? I mean, I'm just, I'm having a hard time believing it. Now, Thomas's response lets us know where his heart is at. He's not just saying, guys, I'm kind of struggling to believe this. He says, unless I actually can, like, touch his wounds... I will never believe. So Thomas is being very honest about his struggle here. Now, in the greater context of what's going on, I think it's important to give Thomas some benefit of the doubt. And so I want to look and see where else do we see Thomas showing up in the Gospel of John? And what do we learn about? Is he always the guy who's doubting? Like, is he always the guy who's showing up and going, nah, you're going to have to prove it, Jesus, before I'll believe. Oh, okay, now I believe. We go back to John chapter 11. This is where um, Jesus and the disciples first catch word that Lazarus is, is, is deathly ill. Okay, and I don't know if you remember that part of the Gospel of John, but word comes to Jesus, disciples, Lazarus is really sick. There's some conversation about going, but then Jesus is like, no, we're going to stay for a little while. But then um, what happens is Jesus is like, okay, guys, now it's time to go. And the disciples are getting nervous because there's already death threats against Jesus. Essentially, there's a warrant for his arrest, and there have been death threats, not just for him, but for anybody who claims to be his follower. So in John chapter 11, verse 14, we read these words. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. 
And for your sake, speaking to the disciples, I am glad I was not there so you may believe. But let us go to him. Now, what's interesting is the other disciples are like, are you kidding me? We could get arrested. They, they, could, they might catch us. And look at what Thomas in verse 16 says. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples. So he's not even talking to Jesus. Like he's confronting the other disciples. He turns to them and he says what? Let us go also. Let us also go that we may die with him. This is, this is the guy that we're calling Doubting Thomas. He's the only one of the 12 saying, I'm in, I'm going. If Jesus is going, I'm going. Guys, let's go. Even if they kill it, let's go. Let that we may what? Die with him. And so at the very least, Thomas wanted to be seen as somebody who loved Jesus and was willing to courageously, like even risk his life for Jesus. I think about another story in John 14. This is in the upper room before Jesus is arrested. He's giving some final teachings to the disciples. And he's talking about some things that are really hard to understand. He's talking about going to prepare a place and that he's going to come back and get them. And this is in John 14, verse 4. And you know the way to where I am going. That's what Jesus says to the disciples. Look at what Thomas says in verse 5. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? To which Jesus so famously replies, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. And so rather than being one of those guys who just smiles and nods when Jesus is teaching hard things, Thomas is like, whoa, 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 whoa. I don't understand what you just said. But the other disciples are just smiling and nodding. Oh, that's right. Mm -hmm. Yep, you're going to prepare a place for us. What does he mean by that? I don't know. Thomas is like, whoa, 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 whoa. How in the world am I going to go somewhere? How do I know the way to where you're going? We don't even know where you're going. And so if anything, I, I, I would rather call him honest, Thomas. Right? In each moment, he's just honest. Like, guys, yes, we may die if we go to Bethany. But Lazarus, it's Lazarus. And Jesus is going, how could you stay? Yes, let's go, and we may end up dying with him. Ooh, Jesus, that's a really hard teaching. Can you explain it? I don't get it. I'm just going to, I don't get it. What do you mean you're going to go somewhere and prepare a place for us? How can we go where you're going? We don't even know where you're going. And so I love that when we get to chapter 20 and the resurrection appears, Thomas kind of has his own experience here. Right, The one who's like honest Thomas, is he's being honest. He could have just went along with what the other disciples were telling him, right? right? He could have been fearful of, oh, these guys are going to like make fun of me, or they're going like to kick me out if I don't believe. And he's like, I'm sorry, guys. I'm never going to believe. I cannot imagine a scenario where I would believe that Jesus rose from the dead unless I get to touch him. Like literally put my finger in his hands, and stick my hand in the wound on his side where they stuck him with the spear. And to fully kind of understand what's going on and kind of the backdrop here, this is really hard for us to grasp. Like it's really hard for us to grasp the level of intensity and persecution that these guys were facing. And so we go to the Gospel of Matthew. 
Gospel of Matthew tells us that after the upper room appearances, Jesus tells the disciples to meet him in Galilee. Okay, but also Matthew includes what happens with the soldiers that Pilate had put to watch the tomb to make sure nobody stole the body. And so if you go to Matthew 28, listen to this description of what's happening in the backdrop behind this difficulty Thomas is having to believe in the resurrection. Verse 11 of Matthew 28, while they were going, where? To Galilee. Behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. So the disciples head out to Galilee. The guards are like, some of the guards are like, dude, we got to go tell Pilate what happened. So they go back into town to tell Pilate what happened, and they come across the chief priests, which were the Jews who had Jesus crucified. Verse 12 says, And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers. So you're picking up on what's happening right here, right? If you're like, well, that sounds like bribery. That's exactly what it is. And then they're told, they tell them, tell, tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So these soldiers, these guards, they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. So stop right there. We'll come back to 16 and 17. So here's what's happening. The soldiers are like, we've got to go tell somebody what just happened. Like there were angels. The tomb is empty. Holy cow. Like we're in trouble. They go back into town. The Jews are there. The chief priests are there. They're like, guys, listen, I know that you wanted Jesus killed and, and crucified on a cross. And I'm telling you, I saw, we saw his body in the tomb. And then these angels showed up and the stone was rolled away and the tomb was empty. So the chief priest, rather than saying, okay, well, you need to go tell Pilate, like, hey, 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 come here, shh, like, here's a bunch of money. Not only do we need to, you to keep this story quiet, we're going to give you a different story to tell. Here's what we, everybody's got to be on the same page for this to work. Here's what we want you to say. Tell the people that during the night while you fell asleep, I mean, who's going to be mad at you? You fell asleep that some of his disciples came and stole the body. And, and don't worry about Pilate, we'll take care of Pilate. Pilate figures this out, or like, we'll, we'll plead your case, we'll, we'll get your back with Pilate. And so they did what? They took the money and went and started perpetuating this lie. So you can begin to kind of feel the, the rumors and the heat and the persecution are beginning to mount up. And so to think about Thomas's difficulty to believe, like, it wasn't just hard for him to believe, like, pragmatically or logically that a, that a body could be dead and then come back to life. It was also dangerous. To say that you believed in Jesus was to take a stand, a public stand for something that very likely would get you arrested, beaten, tortured, and maybe even put to death. Like from the Pharisees' perspective, if they were to take this step and believe in the resurrection, that would be to admit what? That they were wrong and that they murdered somebody. So there's no way they want this story getting out. But from the disciples' perspective, it was not only hard to believe, like it's just hard to imagine a miracle of this magnitude, it was also dangerous to believe. So it's not hard for me to empathize with Thomas. Like he's just being honest. He's just like, guys, like, listen, like, I, I, I know you believe it. I can tell. But I'm not where you are. And unless I get to touch him, I will never believe. 
And so now what's going to happen is in a very uh, personal way, Jesus is going to show up and he's going to reveal himself to Thomas. We'll pick this back up now in verse 26. So eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Now, look at what happens next. Thomas answers him. My Lord. My God. That's, that's, that's John's way of capturing Thomas looking at Jesus and going, It is you. It is you. Lord, my God. And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who believe. Excuse me, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Now, what I think is so important to understand about this moment is, first of all, Jesus didn't make a mistake a week previous to this when he showed up in the upper room in the same manner. Like, if you notice the parallels, doors are locked. Jesus shows up, resurrected body, somehow gets in, and he says the same thing. Peace be with you. It wasn't like he made a mistake the week before and was like, oh, oh, I thought Thomas was here. Tell you what, guys, I'll come back in a week. Right? Jesus revealed himself in a very intentional way. We've, we've noted that Jesus didn't reveal himself to Pilate. He didn't reveal himself to the Pharisees. He's revealing himself to those who he loves. And we've noted how he revealed himself to Mary Magdalene in the garden when she's like, oh my gosh, like somebody stole the body and oh, there, man over there's the gardener and he must have been the one that stole and Jesus just looks at her and is like, Mary, it's me. Jesus is very intimately and very personally revealing himself to Mary and then he does that with 10 of the 12 disciples because remember Judas is gone and Thomas was absent so now Jesus comes back again like this makes me think of like the parable of the lost sheep right the willingness to leave the 99 to go after the one Jesus had eight days to reveal himself to Thomas in in hundreds of different ways right could have showed up while Thomas was eating his cereal, had his head down, all of a sudden Jesus just says his name, like, whoa, there he is. Could have happened in a dream. It could have happened in hundreds of different places in eight days. But Jesus, in his grace, gives Thomas the same experience that the other ten had. Now, here's what I want you to not miss. What was Thomas's request? That I touch him. Okay? Jesus wasn't there to hear that, yet Jesus knows it. And so when he shows up, he's not only giving Thomas the same experience the other ten had, he's meeting him exactly where he is. When Jesus says, Thomas, come here and touch me, what he's saying is, Thomas, I, I heard your prayer. I heard what you asked for. I heard you saying that that's what you need to believe. Thomas, come here and touch me. Now, here's what I don't want you to miss. Did Thomas even touch him? When Thomas saw him, How many times do we go to God, God, this is what I need. Here's the problem. Here's the solution. Let me know when you're ready to solve it my way. So think about that. 
Jesus knew not, what Tom, not only what Thomas was asking for, he knew what Thomas needed. Thomas didn't need to touch him. Thomas needed to see him. Thomas needed to hear Jesus say his name in that same unique and intimate way that Mary Magdalene heard Jesus say her name. And so here we have Jesus showing up in a very intimate, real way, revealing himself now to Thomas. I love Thomas's answer. Like, I don't know that I can fully capture that. Like, like I really think it was, oh my God, that's you, it's you. It's true. Like, it's really true. You, how, what, what, like, it's you. And Jesus' response? Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen yet believed. Church, he's talking about you. That's who he's talking about. Jesus was very specific on who he chose to reveal himself to. And Jesus says, Thomas, I'm going to meet where you are in your doubt and in your struggle. I know what you asked for, but I also know what you need. You think you need to touch me to believe. All you really need is you just need to see me and you need to hear me say your name. You need to hear my voice. But Thomas, you need to understand this. Blessed are those who have not seen those who will come after you, those who you go tell this story to. In the same way that the other 10 disciples told you this story and you refused to believe, now you're going to go out and tell this story. And bless, blessed are those who hear the story you tell them and believe. I want to just take a moment to invite you to be honest with yourself today. Do you believe in the resurrection? I know early on in my Christian journey, I didn't wrestle much with the resurrection. I didn't think much about it. I really don't know when it was that I fully came to a place where I was like, okay, it's settled. I believe it. I definitely know there were moments along the way where the resurrection became more and more real to me. But I want you to think about whether or not you truly have come to the place in your journey where you have said, yes, I believe in the resurrection. It's not folklore. It wasn't an apparition. The disciples didn't steal the body. They didn't spread rumors. It really happened. In 1 Peter chapter 1, years later, Peter says this about us. He says in verse 8, he says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see, now see him, you believe in him. Now listen what he says. And rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Have you come to that place? Like where you believe in the resurrection to the point that it has filled you with inexpressible joy and glory. I was reading uh, one of my favorite books that's not explicitly a Christian book, though it's got a lot of Christian themes in it. It's a, it's a fiction by uh, author Wendell Berry. It's called Jaber Crow. All my good friends are probably tired of hearing about Jaber Crow. It's one of my favorite books. It's a story about this uh, small-town bachelor who grows up in his hometown, and he becomes a barber. And somewhere along the way, he wants to make some extra money, so he takes on the role of gravedigger, thinking, oh, this will be an easy way to make some extra money. 
And uh, in one of the scenes in the book, he's, he's actually digging a grave, and he begins to think about the resurrection in a way that he's never thought about it before. And I just want to read a quote here from, from this section of the book. So this is from the perspective, he's got a shovel, and he's digging a grave, and he's down in the dirt. He says, it was a strange thing to cut out the blocks of sod and then dig my way to the dark layer where the dead lie. I feel a little uneasy calling them the dead, for I am as mystified as anybody by the transformation known as death. And then he says this. Now this is from the perspective of a, somebody digging a grave and they're down in the dirt. He says, and the resurrection is more real to me than most things I have not yet seen. It wasn't until he actually dug somebody's grave and got down six feet under to that dark layer of sod where it's cold and it's damp and the only thing you can smell is dirt. And he began to think about there in the cemetery being surrounded by people who have been laid to rest. He said it was in that moment that the resurrection became more real to him than anything else that he had not yet seen. I shared with the first service, and I'll share with you guys just some of my own moments of believing in the resurrection. Um, I, was, I did a, a funeral um, this past Friday, Celebration of Life for somebody I knew and cared, cared for, and it was just really hard, younger guy. But before I, I did the service on Friday, I went back um, through like all of my, my folder of all my sermons or all the services I'd done, and I think that Friday one was 35 that I've done in 13 years. And it seems like with each funeral or memorial service or celebration of life, for me personally, the resurrection becomes more and more real, more and more essential like more and more critical to this concept of hope. That if the resurrection isn't real, there actually is no hope. Like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, hey church, if the resurrection isn't real, then we're to be pitied more than anybody. I mean, what a, what a hook, line, sinker lie if the resurrection is not real. And think about even some more personal moments along in my journey. One of them is, is kind of funny, involves my youngest son, Calvin. Uh, if he remembers this, he was four, uh, and I picked him up from pre-K. I think it was around Easter time because he was thinking about the resurrection, and you know, he's at a public school, so I don't think they were talking about Easter and resurrection there. So I pick him up from pre-K, and uh, we're driving down the road, and I just love driving down the road with my boys and the conversation we have, and he says, Dad, I have a question um, about the resurrection. So I'm driving, he's in the, you know, the back seat, and I'm like, wow, this is pretty cool. What's he going to ask? And I just love the question, Calvin, that you asked. Um, he says, Dad, whenever, whenever I get my new body, can I get the, the, the dark brown skin like my friend Isaiah at school? Gosh, just made my heart smile for like a thousand different reasons. But one of those reasons was just how childlike his faith was. How easy it was for him to cross that threshold into faith and say, yeah, I believe in the resurrection. That's not what I have questions about. I need to know what color skin I'm getting. Can I get the dark brown skin? Because my buddy Isaiah looks pretty cool. I want his skin. Like I said, that'll never, that'll never, like that for me was a big moment in my own heart to say, man, do I believe like that? And I also shared just another moment, something we went through as a couple um, where uh, my wife was diagnosed with cancer and there's that 
that moment of like that period of time between diagnosis and like prognosis, you know, where you're just waiting. And then most of us do the thing you shouldn't do, and we go online and we search, and you start looking at like what's the worst that can happen, and then your mind just starts to spiral. And I just remember conversations that, that Hallie and I had um, during that season. And I just remember for me just how real the resurrection was. Like if there's no resurrection, there's no hope in walking through cancer, terminal illness. Like, and honestly, if there's no resurrection, there's no hope. Like I was, this morning, I was waiting on the first service to start, and I was out on the turf, and I went out to kind of watch the sun come up. Uh, but this morning, I don't know if you were outside, there was this strange, like, swath of clouds going from south to north out to the east, blocking the sunrise. And I knew the sun was rising because if I looked straight up, there was, there was a few, like, clouds up straight above me that looked like they were on fire just bright orange, but right out in front of me where the sun should have been, it was just shrouded with darkness and with clouds. It looked cold. It looked gloomy, but I, but I knew that the sun was rising behind the clouds because I could see just hints of the evidence of it, right? Just thinking about how we approach life and we go through hard things, and we talk about this light at the end of the tunnel. What do we mean by that? We mean as long as, as, long as I can look forward, from my difficult situation that is dark, that is lonely, that is painful, as long as I can look forward and just see a, a hint, a, a, just some kind of sign that it's going to be okay, I think I can make it another day. But if I ever get to the place where I, I can't see hope, I can't see a light at the end of the tunnel, I don't know if I can go on. Like, that's what it, that's what it's like to walk through this life. And it's the resurrection that gives us hope in all of our suffering moments. Not just at a funeral, but like in our darkest parenting moments, in our, in our hardest moments in marriage, in those hard moments in friendship, and when, when relationships are broken or shattered or dismembered to the point, you're like, there's no way this could ever be put back together. It's the resurrection that brings us hope. Right? That every cold dark winter will give way to what springtime even when i can't see it there's a light at the end of the tunnel blessed are those who have not seen and still believe now next week we're going to come back and we're really going to zoom in on this word believe like what it really means to believe and trust in christ but i want to just leave you with a couple of things first of all if the resurrection is real, the implications are, are, are huge. If the resurrection is real, then Jesus is the Son of God, and he deserves full devotion and full-on adoration. If the resurrection is real, right, his teachings are to be listened to and followed, his commands are to be obeyed. He's the Son of God. And so I understand, like, it's not just Thomas who's struggling here. For us to believe, it's a big thing. It means something to say, yes, I believe in the resurrection. But I just want to really want to leave us all with this question that maybe each of us would ask honestly about ourselves. Do I believe in the resurrection? Maybe you're going through something right now and you're like, yeah, that whole light in the tunnel thing, like I can't see it. I, I get that. Sometimes life is that hard. You just can't even see it. 
And so your hope is not looking for a solution on your own. Your hope is in the resurrection. The God who, who redeems, the God who brings good out of evil, the God who brings light out of darkness, the God who steps in, meets you where you are. He doesn't meet you at the end of the tunnel. He meets you where you are, and he walks with you. And so I don't know where you are today, but I'm just going to pray for you, pray for us. Maybe you would take some time just to think about, do I truly believe in the resurrection of Jesus? So I'm going to pray for you, and then our, our prayer partners are going to be available at the front, and our elders will be out in the commons, and worship team is going to be up here leading us. Let's pray together and let's respond. Uh, Father, we thank you for these powerful resurrection appearances from the Gospel of John. But not only are they powerful, God, they're very personal. And God, that alone gives us hope. To know that you are a God who knows our name. A God who's willing to pass through the locked doors and just meet us where we are, even in our doubt and our fear. God, it gives us hope that you have power over suffering and you have power over death. And so we gather together as your people today to remind ourselves and to remind one another, I believe, I believe in the resurrection. Father, I know without a doubt there are people in the room today who need to encounter and experience the power of the resurrection. So Father, we're inviting you, we're asking you, we're begging you that you would meet with us now, your spirit would move through this place. You would speak to our hearts and our minds. And Father, that we would respond. We pray all this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.